Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, June 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, why Mississippi's VA hospital is on a high-risk list and what's being done to address the issues. We're actually getting assistance from the headquarters in the VA with experts that have actually been working with us. We've created teams, and each team is focusing on different areas. And the bottom line is important to patient care and safety. Then in StoryCorps, a conversation from the Mississippi stop on the tour. And we'll hear from advocates with the Poor People's Campaign and critics who disagree with how to provide for the state's vulnerable citizens. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. One of Mississippi's VA hospitals is improving its procedures. The GV Sunny Montgomery VA Medical Center in Jackson is listed on the U.S. Veterans Administration's high-risk list. In an April quarterly report comparing VA medical centers, a total of 15 centers nationwide were cited. The study found the GV Montgomery facility is failing in five out of ten categories. Some of the problems include lengthy hospital stays, complications while hospitalized, mortality and employee satisfaction. Medical Center Director David Walker says they're attacking everything the center is facing by bringing in medical experts and hiring and training staff. So it's actually a several-pronged approach. One is that we've, we're actually getting assistance from the central office or the headquarters in the VA uh, with uh, experts that have actually been working with us in different sections like mental health. Uh, they've been on site and they're actually going to be here again next month. Uh, we have uh, dashboards that have been created for us that allow us to see things uh, in a, a easier way so you don't have to go through all the data and multiple sites to get it, and so that actually helps. And then we have certainly been uh, encouraging staff to get involved. We've created teams. We call them SAIL teams, since SAIL is the name of the report. And you know, each team is focusing on different areas, and are there areas that are actually important uh, to the rating? And the bottom line is important to patient care and safety. What has been the hospital's rating? Uh, so the we're a two-star on the five-star uh, setting or rating. Uh, they do the stars once a year, uh, and last fall was the last rating. And uh, the next rating is going to come out, we assume, uh, late summer or uh, early fall. Looking at the most recent rating, there are a number of categories and uh, performance measures. What is care transition? Uh, so that looks at... For instance, readmissions uh, within uh, 30 days. It also looks at uh, those conditions that you see in primary care that are highest risk to actually cause the veteran to come in the hospital. So in other words, those kind of common conditions like they could be uh, 
what we call COPD, which is like an emphysema or lung disease. They could be severe heart disease, like heart failure, called congestive heart failure, diabetes with complications. So those conditions that actually uh, are the most likely, if they're not managed well, to lead to the veteran coming into the hospital. And we've actually been doing well in that. And that's in the top 40% out of 129 acute care hospitals? Yes, and how, we're, uh, and, and how we're doing compared to all of the other VAs. Then we look at um, performance measures and, and screenings and that type of thing. Uh, you seem to be doing pretty good with that. Yes, and actually there's both inpatient and outpatient. And so for outpatient, that is actually uh, viewable on the accesstocare.va.gov website where you can look and see how are we doing with screening for cancers, uh, managing diabetes, managing hypertension, uh, giving vaccinations. And the vast majority were actually doing very well and outperforming both the community and the nation, uh, except for flu shots. We do struggle with flu shots. Uh, and then on the inpatient side, uh, we have uh, measures, and we certainly have uh, areas for improvement. But overall, if you take all of those, we're actually uh, doing very, very well. We've done work to, to be more efficient, to add more uh, what we call slots or appointments uh, for access. And so uh, if you look at access, if you look at our numbers, I believe they're good. But the bottom line, it's what the veteran believes is all that matters. And no private sector puts their access out there. And so there's no comparison. But, uh, you know, if the veterans have concerns, then I'm going to have a concern. And I rarely get uh, complaints from veterans. Let's uh, take a look at one of the issues that was a main concern, and that was mortality. Uh, And from talking to you, it sounds almost like it's an informational piece that's missing? So one of the things that we have seen is that we admit a lot of patients that unfortunately they are due to cancer or having uh, conditions like heart failure or severe emphysema that they are towards the end of their life. And unfortunately, we haven't had those conversations ahead of time to say, when that time comes, what are your wishes? How do you want to be treated? Do you want to be what's called a do not resuscitate? Do you want to be a candidate for hospice or palliative care? Um, Or do you want everything possible to be done until the very end? In other words, what are your wishes? And so we do have in our system where... On the day of admission, that needs to be in the electronic health record or else that uh, mortality is counted as unexpected. And so we are working to actually have those what we call goals of care conversation in the outpatient arena. So in primary care, in oncology, because they're not easy conversations to have. And they're not a a 20 or 30 second conversation. Uh, They take time and and we have a training program for our doctors. We've trained over 60 of our doctors uh, in four hour training blocks to have that. Because when you have those conversations early, 
it actually is better for the veteran and the family because then everybody knows what the veteran and what the patient wants and the patient then doesn't undergo unnecessary things that they wouldn't want, but they may not be in a position to say anymore. VA Medical Center Director David Walker with our Desiree Frazier. The Medical Center is doing well on low readmissions and preventative care. Coming up, we'll hear from advocates with the Poor People's Campaign and critics who disagree with how to provide for the state's vulnerable citizens. That's after a conversation in StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Are you looking to buy your first house or need a refresher on the best steps to take to make probably the biggest purchase of your life? If so, listen to our next Money Talks broadcast. In addition to home buying questions that can be answered by our guest, realtor Danny Lee, our financial experts can take personal finance questions today on Money Talks on MPB Think Radio or on the Internet at mpbonline.org. What would it be like to do school from kindergarten through college all over again? Today's StoryCorps conversation is with a woman who did just that. Malia Dicker had what most would call a regular, successful adult life, but something about it all just didn't sit right with her. As she tells her husband Darren Schwindeman at the StoryCorps mobile studio in Jackson, that's when she came up with the Reschool Yourself project. So I just thought to myself, like, if I could do anything, what would it be? And it was, I wish I could be a kid again. You know, I just had this sense of childhood as this magical time where I was happy and free and curious and creative. And from there, it was, I wish I could do school over again. And I sat with that and I thought, well, why not? I was from a small town and I knew some of the teachers still and I thought, why not just try, you know? So I reached out to my teachers at my old schools and proposed, you know, can I come back and be a kid again and write about this experience? And they said, sure. And <laughs> I really expected them to say no. But um, that fall, you know, well, really right after the retreat, I quit my job. And then that fall, I started back in kindergarten. So what was your first day of school like as an adult? Yeah, I, it was funny. I woke up in the morning and thought, like, what do I wear to do this project? You know, I wasn't going to blend in, obviously, in kindergarten. So, um, yeah, I wore a long jean skirt and a peasant top and flats and just tried to be unobtrusive and walked to school like I used to do as a kid and just felt the memories already coming back to me, kind of layering on top of each other as I walked to school. Like, that's the place where Sarah and I used to ride bikes, my neighbor from across the street. And this is where I fell down on my bike one time and things like that. It was weird going back into my elementary school. I had been back a few times over the years because whenever I'd come home from, like, from college for Christmas, I would just feel compelled to walk around my elementary school and kind of visit the places that I used to sit and eat lunch or places things had happened on the playground. And it just felt like there was unfinished business there that I needed to take care of. So the project kind of made sense in that way. Like, okay, this is my chance to kind of make peace with all these things that are sort of under the surface. Were you kind of just learning things along the way or, you know, there's there's natural breaks in schooling. So whether you're either you're moving up through the grades or moving between phases of school, elementary to middle school, or, you know, were there differences there in, in what you were experiencing? 
Yeah, I felt it was almost a theme or something I needed to work out in each school. The first in elementary school is really about getting back to that imagination and curiosity and wonder and joy that had driven me as a child and naturally drives all children. That's sort of, I think, schooled out of us or we grow out of as we get to be adults, but it doesn't need to be that way. And I was much more present and much more in the moment. As a, as a child. So I felt like I was able to get back to that because kids are so much like that. It's, it's really hard to just be in your head um, when you're around them. People, you know, they'd be tugging on my sleeve and being like, hey, look at this all the time. So I couldn't ruminate, which is something that I have a habit of doing. Middle school was really about the social confidence because middle school, it, people said I was crazy for going back there because they would never, ever go back to middle school. And I felt somewhat the same. I was apprehensive after being having this joyful, fun experience in elementary to go back into sort of the fray and not knowing if the mean girls would be like, what is she doing here and things like that. And um, when I first walked onto campus, I onto my middle school campus. I walked past the gym and peeked in, and there were kids in their PE uniforms playing basketball. And I just watched them for a minute and felt tears welling up. And I have no—I had no idea why. There was just clearly something about middle school that I needed to work out. I got the opportunity to go to like a middle school dance, and and clearly people were looking at me because I was taller than everybody, and I was trying to figure out how to dance, you know, non-sexy, <laughs> like with all the kids and around. Um, but it was just, you know, I was able to just, like, dance like no one's watching, you know, um, for real. So I felt like I built some social confidence, you know, and just thinking, like, you know, back then I was so shy and so quiet and scared of what people thought of me. And now if I ran into those mean girls, I would be able to kind of go toe-to-toe with them because I just don't care as much anymore. Mm-hmm. High school academics and really struggling with that perfectionism and achievement was the challenge I needed to work through because I saw a lot of the other students becoming what I had become, just so obsessed with achievement and so scared of the future and needing to be the best and needing to get into Stanford and all these things that just really weren't important. Um, you know, I ended up starting my own nonprofits, and so I didn't even need the grades and the resume builders and all those things that I had worked so hard for. Um, but you have no perspective at that age, so I try to tell them, <laughs> but... Yeah, at that age, I wouldn't have listened to myself either. I think one thing that's really interesting about your story is that you don't necessarily have a traumatic experience. You know, there was not a, a natural disaster or you weren't abused or anything like that. Yet you played played by all the rules and, and by all metrics are like a really high functioning and high achieving student. And yet you come out and you have this bitter taste in your mouth about the experience that you had. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's what's so what is interesting because I was a success story in quotation marks. And so in our reunion and actually you visited me during uh, it was September of that year in my high my 10 year high school reunion was happening. And so we got to meet up with people who were from my class. And it was so interesting to me that, you know, I had a conversation with one of my best friends who we all graduated at the top of our class, like top five, you know, and she was working on our master's thesis and she could not pick a topic. She could not decide. And she's like, Malia, I'm a joke. I'm a failure. And I got tears in my eyes because this woman is so amazing. She's so talented and kind and funny. And for her to think that she's a joke and a failure was heartbreaking to me. And it's really the reason that I was doing the project, I mean, because I felt the same thing about myself in a lot of ways. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, 
and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Film director Moctezuma Esparza traveled the nation for premieres of his movies and noticed a problem. There were no first-run movie theaters in any Latino community in the United States. So he's opened up five theaters in Latino neighborhoods with plans for more. We'll talk to him. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates for Mississippi's poor are rallying for the right to education, living wage jobs, and affordable housing. For weeks, members of the Poor People's Campaign have gathered on the steps outside the state capitol as part of a national campaign involving 41 states. The group is named after a national movement started by Martin Luther King Jr. before he was killed in 1968. Tim Collins is executive director of the Mississippi Housing Partnership. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood in Mississippi, many of the same issues remain. One of the major concerns uh, is housing. Back during that time, um, uh, from a historical perspective, many of the houses were decayed in a state of disrepair, um, really unfit to reside in. Uh, and so families residing in, resided in those houses, but they were unfit. We still see some of that right here today, not only in that same area, but even in our capital city of Jackson. Uh, there are a number of substandard uh, houses that families are residing in, and we just want people to have a different, a, a different um, outlook on life. You mentioned some statistics, like how many people are we looking at that lack home ownership uh, and even homeless population? Well, the home ownership in, in, in Jackson uh, hovers below the national rate, and so that national rate is probably around 70% or so. Uh, Jackson's is probably around 64, 65%. Uh, um, so that's, that's a number that we've been working to try to increase through some special programs. Um, but not only that, there are some people who, who are not ready to own a home, as you may have heard me say. Uh, there are a number of people who, who are renting, but that rent uh, has increased to such a point that they can't afford it. Um, uh, either incomes have not kept pace or people don't have adequate work, whatever the case might be. Um, it, it's driving them to a point where if they're renting, they can't, they can't afford to continue staying in that situation. So with this campaign, what are you asking for and who are you asking from? Well, one of the things that we, we're asking for from a housing perspective is that the state of Mississippi uh, would use some of its own resources, its own, its own tax dollars, uh, to, to dedicate toward the creation of a housing trust fund or a low-income housing trust fund. Uh, many of the federal, uh, many of the resources that you have going into affordable housing or to low-income housing come from federal sources. We'd like for the state um, to take up that mantle and say, okay, well, we can invest some of our own monies uh, into, uh, into housing. And a low-income housing trust fund is one of the ways of doing that. There are several states. I think Mississippi is probably one of a handful of states at this point that does not have a housing trust fund. Uh, and so we need that. We can actually see where that would be beneficial for our, for our fellow citizens. When we talk about home, the lack of home ownership and homeless people, kind of paint that picture for, for some people who may think it's only a certain type of person that's in that situation. What are we looking at? Well, there are a number of folk who, who are high-income folk who've been facing foreclosure. So they were in home ownership, but they may have lost their homes. Uh, but one of the things that you're looking at, and one of the, one of the, the segments that we try to serve are, are low to moderate income persons. That's persons for a family of four, for instance, that income is around 43, 44, 44,000 a year, which is not a whole lot for a family of four persons. Um, but it's the family that we try to reach out to. Those families work hard every day, 
pay their bills on time, and have just as much right as anyone else to have an opportunity to buy a house. Those are the folks that we're trying to bring uh, into the fold. But because of some, some past issues with credit or with debt or with some other concerns, they've not been allowed to do that, or because there's some income issues, we're trying to, to make sure that they have an opportunity to own a home. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Just to say that we, we think that uh, we, we, we regret the fact that we have to be here in 2018 for something that we all talked about, that was talked about in, in, in 1968, uh, but it's the reality of it. Um, the same thing uh, is happening. Some of those same concerns are there. Housing is one of them. Uh, education is one of them, as you heard it said. But we just got to get to a point where we can move beyond the problems of 1968. Participants seek to build a moral movement to unite the poor, disenfranchised, and marginalized. Conservatives criticize the movement, saying individuals, not the government, should be responsible for helping the poor. Jameson Taylor is vice president for policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells our Ashley Norwood the way government secures rights is viewed differently by different groups. The first way of talking about rights is essentially socialism. So the, the government has uh, is the source of rights and has control of those rights. And so as far as health care goes... The government is going to set up the healthcare system, and if they believe, for instance, that you need a procedure that costs too much money, then they decide whether or not you're going to be able to get that care. Um, likewise, with education, the government will set up that educational system, and if they believe, well, your child needs more testing, or you need more of this and more of that, when you know you know as a parent, well, I, you know my child doesn't thrive in that environment, they're going to say, well, this is what you get. We're the source of the right. We control the right. On the other hand, you have, you have um, folks, you might call them libertarians, that uh, just see the individual as his kind of own, own world. And that individual creates his own rights and is responsible. And, you know, he's responsible for everything. And if you fail, well, that's too bad. You just you have to suffer the consequences. But my view of rights, and it's the, the view of rights in the Declaration of Independence, is that there's a balance between these two things, a balance between individual responsibility and social obligations. And the, the way the founders talk about that balance is different than how we talk about it. But the way they talk about it is to say that our rights come from God. And in coming from God, there's a, there's a kind of obligation to uh, a certain truth about the world. And so in the way that we exercise those rights, we have limits to those rights. And in particular, those limits are loving our neighbor, caring for other people. But those limits and those obligations are on the individual himself. And so that's, that's a call for each person. No, you are called to care for your neighbor. Who are they targeting? Like, who are they talking to when they say, you know, we're tired of these issues existing in our communities? Well, I, I think that Mississippi certainly has been dealing with systemic problems of family breakdown and poverty and other issues. And these are issues that have to be addressed by policymakers. Again, though, what we need is a, we need uh, innovative solutions to those problems. And I think we need, we need more people working on those problems. It's not the government's responsibility here in Mississippi. It's actually Mississippi's responsibility. I'm a member of the governor's faith-based council, and what, what we do on the council is to help the private sector walk alongside the government 
to find innovative solutions to some of these problems. And so, for instance, this last session, we worked on a tax credit to help people that uh, provide a tax credit for people that give donations to groups that work with foster care kids. And our sense is not everyone can adopt a child through foster care. Uh, Not everyone can work for the foster care system. But everyone in Mississippi can do something to help a child that is in crisis. And so what we are trying to do is encourage people, push people along to do that little bit of extra to help a child in need, to help a family in need. And and I think that's the kind of can-do spirit that we need to launch here in Mississippi of government and the private sector and the churches in particular working together to address these issues. James Taylor is the Vice President for Policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been fun. A mass poor people's campaign rally is scheduled June 23rd in Washington, D.C. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Coming up at 9 o'clock on MPB Think Radio, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.